You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Have you ever dreamed kind of what-if kind of scenarios? You know where you lean back and you just look into the bright blue sky and you just dream about all the things that are the potential of your life. What if? Maybe as a kid you leaned back like I did and dreamed about playing in the NFL. What if one day? Or you thought, what if I could marry the prettiest girl in school? That happened to me. It actually did happen to me. What if, what if I became a millionaire? Or what if I hit the game-winning home run in tomorrow's game? Or what if I got to travel to space? What if it wrestles with or it dreams about the idea of the potential? What could happen? Sometimes we become so cynical we stop thinking that way. We go, that'll never happen. We're break people. We rain on dreams. We destroy dreams. I love American Idol because it takes this idea of what if and it it amplifies it to the greatest level, right? People dream about entering this national singing competition and winning it, getting a, a recording contract and becoming a famous rock star, even if they have no talent at all, right? I mean, they can't sing a lick. You remember this guy? William Hung. 2004, season three, kind of set the bar high. Now, we all love William, okay? I'm not making fun of him. He had his 15 minutes of fame, far greater than any of us in this room, probably. But he can't sing, and he did, he did a rendition of a Ricky Martin song, and he can't dance. And this is what he said at the end of his audition, and I quote, I have no professional training of singing. No one was surprised by that, William. In fact, all the nation knew, as well as those three judges. And yet people were willing to submit to horrible scrutiny on American Idol because they dreamed, what if this happened? What if? In this series, we're going to examine what it might be like if everyone in the 40509 heard the gospel What if people heard about God's love? What if they heard about their sins could be forgiven, washed white as snow? What if they they experienced having their guilt erased and having joined God's family through adoption and having the promise that they will spend eternity with him forever in heaven? How would that change a person? How would it change their family, their job, their neighborhood? How would that change Hamburg if everybody had that experience? Well, without a doubt, I think it would be a game changer for our city. Honestly, this series, What If?, has the potential to impact impact Hamburg one person at a time for all eternity. And it just ripples out from there. This series will take a wide look at this idea we call evangelism. Evangelism is defined simply as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, where to find sustenance for life, telling people about Jesus, the ultimate sustenance for life. So during this series, we're going to discover three key truths about evangelism. The first one is this. Evangelism is important to Jesus. 
It's probably the best place to start. Luke tells us about the purpose Jesus had through a story about a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was uh, extremely wealthy. Now, he wanted to see Jesus, but because he was so short, he wasn't able to see over the crowd. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. Thank you for those of you who went to VBS as a kid. Thank you. I love that song, right? Jesus had such an impact in the meeting that he had with Zacchaeus. He had such an impact that, it, that Zacchaeus declared he was making a huge change in his life. This is what he was going to do. He was going to give half of his wealth to the poor. And then if he cheated anyone as a tax collector, that happened a lot, he was going to repay them four times what he had cheated them. And then we read this, the conclusion of that encounter. Luke 19, verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You catch that at the end? Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't want anyone to miss out on a relationship with his heavenly Father. He didn't want anyone to miss out on being saved from eternity, separated from God. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Evangelism is really important to Jesus. The second truth we're going to discover through this series is that if evangelism is important to Jesus, then it should be important to us. You know, the New Testament has numerous examples of people who took this to heart and introduced other people to Jesus. Andrew, probably the best, the best story of this in the entire scriptures is Andrew bringing his brother Simon to meet Jesus. Now, we know Simon more as his name Jesus gave him, which was Peter. And he, he was so enamored, so moved by his encounter with Jesus that he started to follow him as a student of his. And he became one of his lead guys. In fact, he was so instrumental in that group. He was one of the people who established the very first church in Jerusalem. Philip told Nathaniel another story about Jesus. But Nathaniel is like a lot of people. He was a skeptic. Look what Philip said in John 1.45. He said, We have found the one Moses wrote about, talking about the Messiah, about it in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's standing there. And he says, Seriously? Being the skeptic, he responded to Philip. He said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? You talk about getting dissed. I mean, this is in the Bible still. Nazareth, bad reputation. But he has an encounter with Jesus. Philip doesn't give up on him. He's, he invites him to come check Jesus out anyway. He just says, hey, come and see for yourself. Come and see. And Nathaniel has this encounter. Look at his response. Then Nathaniel, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus had a profound impact on him. Jesus impacted lives of those he encountered all the time in every different kind of format. Whether it was through teaching, like on the Sermon on the Mount, or whether it was doing a miracle, like raising a child from the dead, or even as a woman is passing by him in the crowd, she just touches the hem of his garment. Jesus impacted their lives. And you know, he continues to impact lives today. Jesus made it possible for everyone, 
and I mean everyone, to have a personal relationship with God, to have their sins forgiven, and to spend eternity with Him in heaven. John 3.16 is probably the best known of all Scripture verses in the entire Bible. And it says this, God so, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This verse reminds us that God's love is for everyone. Everybody has a possibility of having that relationship that will transform them for all eternity. Jesus continues to impact people's lives, not just in this moment, not just here in this lifetime, but for all eternity. And when we read these stories, we hear about people who met Jesus and they are so moved and so transformed that they they start to follow him. I mean, these were incredibly encouraging stories as each of these people make these significant changes and start to follow Jesus. But let's be honest. That doesn't always happen that way, does it? Not for us anyway, and not even for Jesus. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, Matthew records a story, kind of interesting, about this young, successful man. Some people call him the rich, young ruler. And he comes to Jesus. He's in search of wisdom and truth. He's probably looking at this up-and-coming rabbi, and he's trying to say, hey, you know, I'd like to get some kudos from him for nailing it, you know, spiritually speaking. And so Matthew tells this story. He says this. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. And Jesus gives him this short list, kind of an overview of commandments. And this young guy's like egotistically saying, you know, I, I nailed it. I kept all of those. Is there anything else? And then Jesus responds with this. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. It seems like an extreme request from Jesus, right? But it's not the first time that he's called people away from something significant. In fact, we know that some of the other disciples, those who were actually with Jesus at the time, they walked away from their livelihood, from their businesses as well. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were part of a family fishing business. And Jesus said, hey, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they did. They just left their nets and started to study under Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector, like Zacchaeus we talked about just earlier. And he had, he was extremely wealthy. In fact, much of his wealth probably came from dishonest gain, but he was wealthy nonetheless. And when Jesus said, come follow me, he did. It says he just walked away from his tax collector's booth. This successful young man has a dilemma on his hands because He's extremely well off. So this was difficult for him. When Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And this is what happened. Scripture says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus had invited this young man to go on a journey 
with him, a trip that would transform his life. But he said no because of all of his wealth and success. Even when Jesus invited others to know him, to follow him, not everybody said yes. Which brings us to the third truth that we're going to find through this series, and that is the truth is there's a risk involved in inviting someone to come meet Jesus. What's the risk? Well, the risk is being rejected. It's like asking a girl to prom, and she says no. And she doesn't have another date. She just doesn't want to go with you. That's like, that's your jet is coming down in flames right there. None of us like that. We don't like being turned down. We don't like rejection, but that's the risk. This risk reveals two problems that we have within the context of evangelism. The first one is fear. Fear. Oftentimes we are hesitant to invite someone to meet Jesus or share our story with them about how Jesus impacted our life because we're afraid. What are we afraid of? We're often afraid of what they might think about us. Are you some Jesus freak? Or how they might respond to us, we fear that. Or what they might say about us to others. Some of us are afraid that we'll say something stupid and embarrass ourselves or look foolish. Or say something even worse that would be theologically wrong. So you know what we do? Oftentimes we don't say anything. There's another risk, problem that risk reveals, and that is doubt. Doubt. Some of us hesitate to share Jesus with others because there are times when we have our own doubts. We all do. You're lying if you don't ever doubt. The truth is, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. We believe that. And we've experienced that Jesus can make a profound difference in a person's life because he did that in our lives. But there are moments when we can't explain something. And it creates some doubt in our mind. And the result is that we hesitate about Jesus and sharing him with others and telling them what he's done in our life. We hesitate inviting them to come and have an encounter with him. The question I think we need to answer personally, each one of us who's a follower of Jesus, we need to answer the simple question, is the risk worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, think about it. Is it worth taking a risk, even when you have fears and you have doubts? Is it worth it, taking the risk to invite someone to come and have an encounter with Jesus? Well, if you would indulge me just for a moment, I'd love to give you a number of reasons that I think influence that question to the positive. For instance, when you enter the idea of extending them the opportunity or the invitation to meet Jesus. You open up the possibility of God's love for them. When they encounter Jesus, they'll experience his love. They'll experience his peace. They'll experience potentially his forgiveness if they surrender to him. Their sins are washed away. They get to experience adoption into the family of God if they, if they choose to follow him. They get the promise of eternal life in heaven. Jesus transforms their life. They're never going to be the same. The Holy Spirit moves into the new believer and begins guiding that person's life. All in all, you open up the door to the opportunity to have a much better life than one you could ever have experienced without him. Now, I'm not sure 
I'm honestly not sure what the number is, statistically speaking, but not everyone who you offer the opportunity to will receive the invitation and follow Jesus. I don't know what the stat is on that, but I am very clear that 100% of those who aren't invited to follow Jesus will not follow him. Think about it. They need an invitation. It's worth the risk to invite others to meet Jesus. I heard a story a long time ago about a man who went to apply for a job as a custodian at First Church on Main Street in this city. The minister at this church in this particular city interviewed this middle-aged man mid-morning for the job. And the interview went so well that the minister decided that he was going to hire the guy on the spot. All we had to do was fill out some paperwork and he could start the next day. But there was one problem. This middle-aged man didn't know how to read or write. The minister apologized, but he said the job required that you must be able to read and write. The minister felt extremely bad for this guy. He was a perfect candidate otherwise. As the man started to leave, he offered him kind of a parting gift, a bushel of apples. One of the church members had dropped off this bushel of apples at the church office really early that morning. He said, I know it's not much, but if you're interested, you're welcome to have this bushel of apples, which the man graciously accepted. Not having a job, the man stood on the street corner and began selling the apples. Before the day was over, he had sold all the apples in the bushel. He took some of the proceeds and he went and he bought some other produce and he continued selling on the street. He actually had a natural ability for selling fruits and vegetables. And before long, he had his own produce stand. He started to make this good living and was so productive that over time, his business grew exponentially. Before long, he had trucks, several trucks, hauling produce all over the state. One day, many years later, he went to the bank to get a loan in order to expand his produce empire. When it came time to fill out the paperwork, he told the banker he didn't know how to read or write, and the banker was stunned, as you can imagine. He said, as successful as you are, and he said, I know you're worth millions of dollars right now. And yet you've done all of this not being able to read and write. This is remarkable. The banker asked, Can you imagine where you might be today had you been able to read or write? To which the produce magnet said, Yeah, I'd be the custodian down at First Church. (laughs) Thank God I can't read and write. It's true. We often size people up, don't we? We often pigeonhole them. We often see people only as they are and not what they could be. Sometimes it's hard to imagine someone coming to Jesus. Sometimes the sin is so pronounced in their life, so ingrained in a person, that we find it nearly impossible to believe that they would ever accept an invitation to meet him, let alone become one of his followers. But that's not a choice that you and I are given It is our responsibility to introduce them to Jesus. It is their choice to accept him or reject him. In John, the fourth chapter, if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our morning. We read about this very unlikely encounter that a woman had with Jesus. This was a woman no one would have ever thought 
would have had a meeting with him, let alone become one of his followers. The story starts in John, the fourth chapter, verse 3 and following. So he left Judea. He's talking about Jesus. He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background to this encounter. Most Jews didn't travel through Samaria. They went around it. This meeting would never happen with most Jews. But Jesus, for some reason, went through Samaria. The way around Judea was twice as long. If you had gone from Jerusalem all the way across the Jordan, up the east side of the Jordan River, and then crossing the Jordan again up to Galilee, that's where they were going. But Jesus, instead, he did a straight shot. It was three days direct. It was six days the long way. And most Jews chose the long route. The reason is, is that Samaritan and Jewish passions often ran high. This was not a safe path for a Jew to travel through Samaria. Now, we're not told the reason why Jesus and his disciples decided to go this route. John simply says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Maybe he had a divine appointment with this woman. We don't know. But this was not the normal route that the average Jew would travel. He goes on in verse 7. He says this, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, traditionally, it is believed that this Samaritan woman was a woman of questionable morals. She had been guilty, most likely, of some level of sexual sin. Now, John makes a reference here that gives us a little bit of insight into who she was when he says this encounter happened at noon, indicating that she was drawing water at a time, trying to avoid the normal time when most women would have been there from the town of Sychar to to draw water. Midday was the worst possible time that you could go to the well because the scorching heat was so prevalent. If anyone were coming to get water at this hour, you could conclude that they were trying to avoid people. She was likely hoping to avoid the condescending looks and the hurtful comments. This meeting would have been extremely rare for a number of reasons. Not only did a rabbi seldom, if ever, talked to another woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. But Jesus and the Samaritan woman were from two different and historically adversarial people groups. Jews and Samaritans, putting it mildly, never hung out together. They were at odds with each other. Each considered the other to have deviated from the ancient faith of Israel. They were both part of the same faith, yet they were bitter enemies. The Samaritan woman probably recognized right away Jesus was Judean from his clothing and maybe even from his accent. So the big question is, how could a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman with all kinds of relational and moral baggage 
have anything to do with each other. Well, Jesus, Jesus opens the door for it. Jesus asked her for a drink, and she knew what that meant in that culture, that time. In their world, giving and receiving water was an invitation to have a conversation. It was an invitation to talk. It was actually the first steps toward becoming friends. She pushed back on it, reminding him of their differences. She says, how can a Jewish man like you ask a Samaritan woman like me for a drink of water? He can ask because he's not like every other Jew. He's God. He isn't concerned about the issues of race or gender. From his point of view, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. John continues the story. says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now this woman came to the well just to get some water. And this stranger is offering her living water. Naturally, she'd be skeptical. I mean, who wouldn't? She even asked him in verse 11, you have nothing to draw with. She reminded him, as one, one translation says, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> How are you going to get me living water? Yet despite her skepticism, Jesus didn't give up on her. In fact, he probably pointed down at the well, and then he told her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. And Jesus is right. Nothing on this earth truly satisfies, does it? Not for long. There are a lot of good things that we experience, like fresh water and sunshine and healthy food and, and the love of a godly person, but none of those, none of those satisfy that longing spiritually that we have in the core of who we are. Nothing on this earth can quench that spiritual longing. So Jesus continued in verse 14. He said this, But whoever drinks the the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, this woman, we learn about the fact that she was willing to settle in a lot of ways for a lot less. Jesus wanted to give her more. He didn't want to just give her water. He wanted to give her living water. And while she was happy with the temporary satisfaction that came from drinking the tepid water that came from Jacob's well, or settling for a life with a man in Sychar who would possibly dump her at any given time, Jesus longed for her to experience eternal joy, not just temporary. And the truth, you have to let go of the one in order to embrace the other. You have to let go of the temporary in order to embrace the eternal. You have to let go of this world in order to embrace Jesus. If we are constantly seeking to satisfy our flesh, our spiritual lives will atrophy. In Romans 8, 6, the writer of Romans says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace, which would you rather have? 
The story goes on in John, 15, John 4, verse 15. He says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now, you now have, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. There's a lot going on in this conversation, especially right there at the end. When this woman refers to Jesus as a prophet, she's acknowledging her sin. She's saying, you must be a prophet because you just told me all this stuff that's been going on in my life. But like a lot of us, rather than deal with it, she tries to change the subject by raising this doctrinal question about where you should worship. She doesn't have, she doesn't want to deal with her sin in front of this Jewish prophet. So Jesus shows her compassion and he answers her question. Look at verse 21. He says, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And then all of a sudden his disciples show up. They've gone to get food in Sychar and they come out and they're kind of surprised to see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. But none of them bring it up, right? Well, you see what's going on? Yeah, yeah, I ain't saying anything, man. He's a Messiah, you know, I'm fooling with that. And then the woman leaves and she, she's in such a hurry, she leaves her jar behind that she, was, she had come to fill with water. And she rushes back to town to tell her people about Jesus, posing this important question to them. Could this be the one whom Israel has been awaiting for? They'd been waiting a long time. If it was true, this Messiah, he would be a big deal. Especially right there in the center of Samaria. You see, the Messiah is a game changer. Well, John summarizes what happens as a result of this woman's testimony. Look what happens. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Nobody did that in Samaria. They were trying to get through it as fast as they could. Nobody stayed an extra two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. An unlikely encounter. This woman 
This woman's meeting with Jesus was highly improbable. And yet she had it, and it changed her life. And not only did it change her life, but it changed the lives of many others in her hometown. We underestimate the ripple effect that one person can have for the sake of the gospel. They are introduced to Jesus, and they accept his free gift of grace. And then they turn around and they tell their friends and their family and their co-workers and their neighbors and their classmates. And other people then meet Jesus. And as a result, they too accept the life-changing grace that he has to offer Remember the purpose? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This was the purpose Jesus had, to seek and to save the lost. As his followers, that becomes our focus as well. So the question through this entire series is, if this is our business, how's business? When was the last time you invited somebody to have a meeting with Jesus, just a, an opportunity for them to encounter the Savior of the world. One of the things that we're going to do in this series, three Sundays from now, the 24th, we're having what we call Friend Day. And the reason for this is to create an opportunity for all of us to have an excuse to invite our friends. You're welcome. Uh, who is the person that you would love to have in the family of God? In three weeks, we're going to have a day here, and we're, going to, we're tailoring it for them, kind of rolling out the red carpet, if you will. And we're going to have a, it's going to be a special service, and then afterwards you can read about the cookout and everything. All of it's free, okay? All the, all the food, all the Italian ice is going to be there, the fire truck, inflatables, all that stuff. All because... We want to have a time as a family to come together, but we also want to have a time where we can say, hey, why don't you come with me? Just come, and who knows? It's a day that you can invite them, and they just might have an encounter with Jesus. And if that is the case, who knows? that one invitation could change the eternal destiny of that person. We're making it a special day. I want to encourage you to do two things. Start praying right now. Lord, who should be on my list to invite? And then as God starts to give you some names of people, pray for courage to invite them. It's so easy. In fact, I'm mandating it right now, okay? So now it's an order. I mean, you got to follow an order. I'm, I think you know I'm kidding. But I hope that you'll pray. Ask God to point you in that right direction. And then invite them. And don't be afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of them saying no. Because that may happen. But don't quit on them either. Keep praying that God will move their heart. If this happens... It's possible that everyone in the 40509 could actually hear the gospel. I know it's a huge, it's a huge what if, but how cool would it be? It'd be pretty cool. We're going to change the direction, the population of heaven through this. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you 
that you want a relationship with us. And you went to great lengths to make that possible. I'm so grateful for Jesus, what he did on the cross, dying for our sin and raising from the dead, conquering the one power Satan had, which was death. Lord, I pray that you will give us clear direction on who we should invite and who we should bring with us, not just on friend day, but any day, but specifically that day, Lord. Give us courage to introduce uh, you to our family and our friends. Help us not to be stopped by things like fear or doubt or anything else. Help us to introduce our friends, our family, other people in our neighborhood. Help us to introduce them to you. Lord, we praise you and give you thanks today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.